You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together. We turn, in view of our text of Revelation 22, the verses 1 to 5, we turn first of all to Genesis chapter 2, the verses 4 to 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watered the garden, flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pison. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 12. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple Faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En-Engeliam. 
There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God, as you find it in Revelation chapter 22, the verses 1 to 5. So we continue our series. I thought we would be concluding our series this morning, but there's just too much in this chapter. So we're going to look this morning at the verses 1 to 5 of Revelation 22. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city or street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the news media regularly deals with quality of life issues. And indeed, it will often do surveys to determine which city or country has the best quality of life and then proceed to rank them. The criteria for determining the quality are things like income levels, crime rates, community services, traffic congestion, mass transit availability, air quality, and so forth. And thankfully, Canada, as well as the city of Vancouver, frequently rate high or near the top of these lists. We live, you can say, in the most blessed part of the world. But having said that does not mean that we have no challenges or no problems. Go to East Hastings and see our poor. Visit our hospitals and see our sick. Enter our jails and see our criminals. Interview our citizens and see our substance abuse problems. Speak with married couples and hear about their divorces. Listen to their children and hear their struggles. And so as good as we may have it, we still long for more. Being the number one city or country in the world on occasion is an honor, but it is still not without its qualifications. Yes, we are number one, but. And at the same time, if we are number one and there is still so much that needs to be improved locally and nationally, 
What does that say about the city or the country that is at the bottom of the list? Their problems and their challenges must be staggering. All in all, beloved, it makes one long for an even better world. A perfect world. It would be nice to live in a place where there are no negatives, no qualifications, no problems, no blemishes or disappointments or sadnesses at all. It would be nice. But will it ever happen? Well, beloved, if you turn to the last chapters of the book of Revelation, then you know that one day it will happen. One day, perfection will arrive. One day, there will be no need for cities and countries to compete for the number one spot because they'll all be number one. In short, there is hope. Great hope, even amazing hope. And with that in mind, I would like to preach to you this morning on the following theme. Eden is coming back And it will be better than ever. So Eden is coming back, and it will be better than ever. Well, last time, beloved, we took a close look at the New Jerusalem, the city bride, and we saw something of her holiness, her safety, as well as her glory. And it was quite the tour that John received from the angel and quite the picture that he subsequently painted for us in chapter 21. And it whetted our appetites for the world to come and it made us look forward even more to the new heaven and the new earth. Only as we turn to chapter 22, we see that the angel is not finished touring and that John is not yet done with seeing nor with writing. For after seeing the city, John is led to see the river. And now you may wonder about that. You may even be saying to yourself, well, I can understand why John is led to to see this great city or this city bride, but what's this about a river? What's so special about a river? Now, I suspect that question is very much a modern and a Western kind of question. And what do I mean? Well, I mean that in our modern world, and especially in parts of our Western world, we we have this tendency to take rivers for granted. We see them as nice and quaint and touristy, but we often fail to see or to notice how essential they are to life, to commerce, to transportation, to agriculture, and to a whole lot of other things. For cities to thrive, especially in the ancient world, they needed rivers. Where would Cairo or Alexandria be without the Nile River? What would Rotterdam be without the Rhine? What would London be without the Thames or or Paris without the Seine? Great cities at least in the past, needed great rivers. And so it is with the New Jerusalem as well. It is a great city and it needs a great river. And what is the river called? It is called the river of life. 
In other words, John writes, this is the river that feeds, that nourishes, that enriches, that blesses the city bride. It will be to it a source of life. And you can see it can be so for two rather unusual reasons. The first is that it will be clear as crystal. Can you imagine that? A pure river. Have you ever seen a a pure river? A river without any murky, dirty, polluted water, without logs and debris, without all kinds of garbage and junk floating in them? Do they still, those kind of rivers, do they still exist in our world? They all seem to be polluted in one way or to one measure or another. Recently, my wife and I spent some time in Shanghai, and while we were there, it was Dragon Boat Festival time. And so we made some remarks about that there must be a lot of dragon boat races going on in the local river as well as in the local canals. And we were told not so. There were no more races. And why were there no more races? Well, because the rivers and the canals, we were told, were far too polluted. The last time the races had been held, there had been an accident and a number of people had toppled into the water and they had been pulled out of the drink and they had been brought to the local hospital and they had all died. And why had they died? Well, because they had ingested too much of this polluted water. So no more races. No more dragon boat races. You can have a dragon boat festival without even having dragon boats on rivers, it seems. But you know, if water as clear as crystal is impossible to find in this today's world, so is something else. And that is water flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Now here we are into symbolic language again. And you know that means that we have to do some digging. And especially again, we have to do some Old Testament digging. You go back to Genesis 2. And what did we just read together? We read there about the Garden of Eden and how it was watered by not one river, but actually by four. And indeed, you can say, were it not for those four rivers, there would be no garden. For they are responsible for its life, its vitality, its growth, its its lushness, its beauty. So all of these rivers represent life. And then go back as well to Ezekiel 47. And there too we we meet a river, but only one river, and it is huge. The prophet calls it a river that no man could cross. And in addition, he says it's also life-giving. Ezekiel says swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. You see, these rivers... In Genesis and in Ezekiel, symbolize life. But then realize the only reason that they can represent life 
has everything to do with their source. Where does Ezekiel's river come from? Where does it start or begin? Ezekiel says in verse 1, I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Water was coming down from under the south side of the temple of the altar. You see, Ezekiel says very clearly, this water is coming from God. And ultimately, where does the water in Genesis 2 come from but from God? God is the one who is nourishing this garden, who's watering this city. I believe at the same point is now being made, John wants to make it in Revelation 22. Notice there too, the water comes from God. It, it comes from the Lamb. It comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb, it says. And that's noteworthy. Earlier, our Savior had said, you may recall to the Samaritan woman, indeed, the water I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And elsewhere, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has says, streams of living water will flow from within him. You see, Jesus Christ promises to give water, living water, to his followers so that they may live forever. Well, beloved, here in Revelation 22, this is being fulfilled. The water is flowing from the throne. The water is giving life, abundant life. And indeed, note as well that remarkable tree that stands on both sides of the river. It has to be huge because it says it's on both sides. And it is surely fruitful because it bears 12 crops of fruit, one every month. It's a kind of super tree, and it's a healing tree. John writes, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In other words, so great is this tree that all kinds of people rest under its shade. And so fruitful is this tree that all kinds of people eat from it every month. Under it, the nations gather, and as they gather, they forget their differences. And they only enjoy God's bounty. They eat. And they no longer see a need to fight and make war against one another. What a graphic picture, beloved, of a blessed world. But realize, the key to it all is God. All of this bounty is possible and flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. He's the source. He's the origin. He's the fountain of it all. And we need to remember that. If today we want life, if we want real life, a full life, a rich life, If that is what we want for ourselves and for our children, then we need every day to remember the source of life. And we need to live close to him. 
and out of him and for him and to him. And if we want eternal life, everlasting life, perfect life, we need to remember this as well. None of us can make this kind of life for ourselves. It doesn't matter how smart or determined you are. But God can give it. And he does give it. Through his son, Jesus Christ. But then, beloved, if John sees the river of the water of life, he also sees something else. He says, no longer will there be any curse there. So what does that mean? What do these words mean? How are we to understand them? Again, it's perhaps best to go back to the beginning of time. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, as you know, fell into sin. They rebelled against God. And the consequence was, well, you can say the consequence can be wrapped up actually in just one word, and the word is the word curse. You see that so clearly in Genesis 3. A curse falls on the serpent. A curse falls on mankind. A curse falls on the ground or on creation. In Genesis 3, the curse is everywhere. And the curse on the serpent or the Satan leads him to become one of our sworn enemies. There's someone always out there seeking to devour us. There's someone out there always trying to trip us up in a thousand different ways. Who delights in the fact that we so often stumble, fall, and even live in the mire. Who majors in sin, sex, and seduction. The devil is always prowling about. And then there is mankind. We still live under a curse. There is the curse of pain that comes with childbirth. There is the curse of broken relationship and unfulfilled dreams and hopes and plans. There is so much curse connected To our human relationships. But beloved, if the curse affects Satan and mankind, it also affects the earth. And the whole matter of making a living. Why are there thorns, thistles, and weeds? Why are there pests? Why are there hailstorms, tornadoes, tornadoes, and floods? Why are, is there sickness and disease and death? In short, there is trouble everywhere. You read about it every day. There's not a day in this life of this world that goes by where you don't read of trouble somewhere with someone in something. Spiritual trouble, relationship trouble, material trouble, physical trouble. We live a troubled life in a troubled world. But then along comes the Apostle John and he says that all of this will pass. That one day the curse that has so set its stamp on our life and our world will be gone. It will be no longer be over. 
It will be finished. And the proof? It's in your text. Four things. The first proof is that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. The curse would never have allowed that. It would have made it impossible. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Impossible. But not if the curse is gone. And the second proof is found in the words, his servants will serve him, verse 3. The reference here is to faithful obedience, constant and consistent service. Now, where does that happen in a cursed world? Never. But it will happen in the new world. It'll come to pass in the world to come. For there at last, God is going to be served perfectly every day by everyone. The third proof of the demise of the curse can be seen in the expression, they will see his face. In this dispensation, can any man see the face of God and live? Scripture says no. Moses met with God and his face became so radiant that he had to resort to a veil. Without a veil, he couldn't have spoken to the people because his face shone so much. And James, Peter, John met with Moses and Elijah and also with God on the Mount of Transfiguration. But none saw his face. His face is just too holy for sinful people to see. But notice, John predicts that will change. There'll come a day. When we'll see God face to face. And that'll be a further proof that the curse has been removed. And that, beloved, brings us to a fourth proof. It has to do with the fact that the name of God will be on the foreheads of his children. Now, it's true that already in this life, there is a sense in which God's name is on the foreheads of his children. After all, that is what we say baptism is all about. When a child of believing parents like Shayla here is presented for baptism, as well as when adults come to faith and request baptism, they themselves receive, as it were, the name of God on their foreheads. God claims them. God names them. We're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But there's also something else going on here. His name is also a badge. It represents the badge of an overcomer. Of someone who has remained faithful to the very end. You may recall earlier Jesus Christ had said to the believers in the church at Philadelphia, Him who overcomes, I will write the name on him, the name of my God. 
And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. So the presence of this name on the foreheads of the saints is, is one more proof that they have won. That God has triumphed. They've overcome. And the curse is gone. Oh, and how that'll change our lives. We cannot even imagine it. We've always lived with the curse in one form or one degree or another. But one day soon, it will be banished forever. One day soon, paradise living will become a reality for the children of God. And so with something else, beloved, it's called living in the light. John writes, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Now, I'm not sure exactly what this all means or entails. Does this mean that the division of day and night will be abolished? Does this mean that night as a time for doing evil, getting drunk, carousing will be over? Or does it mean that sleep will no longer be a necessity in the world to come? I'm not sure. Perhaps it'll be a case of all three. But you know, whatever the case will be, one thing is sure, we will live in the light every day. Every day we will bask in the Lord as our light source. You know, ever since the beginning of July, we've been enjoying sunshine, right? Except... Yesterday morning for a while, and perhaps today, this morning for a while as well. But it's been continuous sunshine, and isn't it, isn't it wonderful? That you get up in the morning and say to yourself, and maybe to others, bring on the sun. But of course we know it won't last. This morning and the rain is a reminder it won't last. We live, after all, on the west wet coast. But, you know, in the world to come, there'll be no such interruptions. The sun will shine, John says. And notice John says, because the sun shines, we will rain. In other words, there'll be lots of time and opportunity for raining. We're using our gifts and our talents and abilities in a whole new world filled with all kinds of great wonders and amazing delights. So, beloved, get ready. Get ready for your great future. Truly, Eden is coming back. 
And it will be better than ever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.